Father, while we don't know the exact date of Christ's advent, it is good to remember His coming. It is good to remember the Word made flesh. It is good to remember God incarnated. It is appropriate, fitting, beneficial to our souls to remember the manifestation of Christ on this earth. It is good to contemplate the eternal promise that you made to the Son to provide and redeem a people that would forever be His, to glorify Him and to exalt Him eternally in heaven. It is good to remember and beneficial to our souls to meditate on the reality that we were worthy only of condemnation, but grace came. And grace has redeemed And grace has saved. And grace has bought us. And grace has given us hope. And grace has given us something we could never attain any other way. As John has just told us, fellowship with you and fellowship with the Son who brought us to you. It is good to contemplate our Savior, His righteousness, His cross, His resurrection, His ascension, His place at your right hand, and our salvation that comes through all these things. Would you give us joy this morning? Would you give us renewed fellowship this morning as we contemplate the provision of Christ at the cross for our fellowship with you. We pray in his name. Amen. Many years ago, when I was in seminary, I was a member of an evangelistic um, team at our church. We did evangelism training, and on a weekly basis, we would go out and follow up visitors to the church. And if we ran out of visitors that had come to the church, then we would head to the mall and and see who we could find to share the gospel with. We were driving back from one of those events one Tuesday evening many years ago, and a friend of mine whom I was discipling in the evangelism process and who was also a fellow seminary student and actually a good friend of mine uh, was asking me some questions about evangelism in the car, and he, and he asked this question. And he said, I understand what the gospel is for. I understand that the gospel gets us to Christ. I understand that the gospel gets us to heaven. I understand the benefits of the gospel in eternal future. But as we're sharing the gospel, what's the value of the gospel now? Is there any benefit to the gospel today? What good is the gospel here not just in eternity. I wish I could remember what I told him. (laughs) I don't have a clue. But oh, how we could answer that question, couldn't we? What is the hope of the gospel now? Oh, brother, the gospel gives us purpose for living now. The the gospel focuses our life now. And uh, the gospel gives us satisfaction in life now. The gospel provides us hope for living now. The gospel liberates us. The gospel frees us from sin. Before we were only in bondage to sin, and now because of the gospel we've been liberated from the power of sin. The gospel gives us an ability to to actually genuinely change. We're, We're not just superficially changing. We're not just restructuring habits, but internally. We are new creatures. We have been genuinely changed and transformed. The gospel equips us to love. The gospel removes the blinding influence of Satan and gives us discernment for living in this life. The gospel restores relationships. 
Oh, the gospel is of immense value today, not just in eternity. As we come to the table of communion this morning, I want to lead you in a contemplation of one of the values and one of the benefits of the cross and the gospel today, now. Over the years, this has been something of uh, something of a, a, a repeated and intermittent uh, series of mine that I've, I've loosely titled The Message of the Gospel. I think I've done about 20 sermons around this theme. What does the gospel do? What does the gospel provide? What is the accomplishment and the power of the cross? And today I want to take a look with you at 1 John chapter 1. And consider the value of the gospel from the standpoint of how it brings us into fellowship with the Father and the Son. The value of the cross is the fellowship that we have with the Father. In part, what the gospel writer, what the, what the apostle John will tell us in this passage is that the manifested Christ is our message. As we think about the gospel, Our message of the gospel is the manifestation of Christ, the appearance of Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. And from his coming, we receive blessings and benefits. And and the apostle John recounts at least two of those in this passage, one of which focuses on the fellowship that we have through the manifestation, through the appearance, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this passage, in these four verses, the Apostle John will remind us of two great realities of Christ and the gospel. Two great realities of Christ and the gospel. The first of those is given to us in verses 1 and 2, and it is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. We see in verse 1, that John begins his letter with a statement about Jesus Christ. It sounds very similar, doesn't it, to John chapter 1, the Gospel John. So he says, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, what we've touched with our hands. But notice as he says that, he, he never gets to a primary verb. He starts describing Jesus Christ. He starts describing what we have observed about him, what we have seen as he was revealed to us or to the apostles. But he never provides the verb. And then in verse 2, he has a parenthetical thought. He already is distracted from the main idea and he moves to another secondary thought. The primary verb doesn't show up until verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. There's the verb. We proclaim him. Something has been revealed about Jesus Christ. And it is that revelation that we see in verses 1 and one and 2 that is the proclamation that John and the apostles make. This is, this is in a word, the gospel message. This is, this is an abbreviated, shorthand, condensed form of the gospel. This is This is what we meditate on as we think about what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And this is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the gospel that needs to be known and believed about Jesus Christ. He will tell us two things about the message of the gospel in these verses. This is not everything about the gospel, but this is a condensed shorthand form of it. One of the realities of the gospel is this, that Christ is the observable God. Christ is the observable God. Again, as we read verse 1, we are reminded about John chapter 1, the Gospel John, and that, that actually helps us to understand what the Apostle means here in this verse when he says, what was from the beginning... Now, he's obviously, as we read through this, he's obviously talking about Jesus Christ. But the question is, is he talking about Jesus Christ from eternity past? Is he talking about Jesus Christ in his eternal preexistence, in his life with the Father? 
And, and from that beginning, so when time began and Christ already existing at the beginning of time, or is he referring to what was from the beginning, that is, what was from the beginning of Jesus' ministry? What was from the beginning of Jesus' advent and arrival on earth, referring to his incarnation? And I would submit to you that John here is emphasizing Jesus' incarnation. He's talking about Jesus' advent and perhaps even more specifically about the beginning of his ministry because he is repeatedly in this opening verse emphasizing the physical presence of Christ on the earth. He's not focusing on what Christ was before time began, but notice he says, we've heard him. We've seen him, we've looked at him, we've touched him. That's the incarnated Christ. That's Christ in the flesh. That's Christ after the ministry has begun. And it is that same emphasis, actually, that John makes in his first, in in his gospel in chapter 1. John chapter 1. He affirms that Jesus Christ is eternal God. That's John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So when time began, the Word already existed. The Word was in the presence with God. And the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, in fact, was God. But his point in John chapter 1 is not to emphasize his eternality. His point in John chapter 1 is to emphasize that he became flesh Verse 10, this one who was Logos, this one who was light, was in the world. And the world was in, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So he came to the world, but the world did not recognize him, the world did not receive him, the world did not believe him. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory of the only, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's emphasis in John 1 is that Christ has incarnated. Christ, the one who is eternal God, has manifested himself in human body. He is genuine, true man. Full God, full man. True God, true man. And because of that, we can say in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In the incarnation, Christ has explained the Father. And so when John says in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 1, what was from the beginning, he is emphasizing the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Christ. We've seen Him from the beginning of His arrival, from the beginning of His ministry, and through His ministry. We also would say that we have, that John is emphasizing this because twice in verse 2, he points to the manifestation of Jesus Christ. He says, the life was manifested This eternal life, the middle of the verse, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. That word manifested has the sense of it just, it just suddenly appeared. It wasn't created, but it suddenly appeared in time and space and history. It points to the genuine reality of Christ on the earth coming as eternal God and genuine human man. And it's pointing to the, to the hypostatic union between eternal God and finite man, the two conjoined in the person of Christ. Says one writer, in every way possible, John stresses the eternal and heavenly has made himself corporeal and historical in a definitive way in the incarnation. He has become genuine man. What is unique and significant about Jesus Christ in his humanity? Well, John tells us 
He was from the beginning. What, the, the one who was from the beginning, from his ministry, as we have seen him, we have heard him. God has a real human voice in the person of Jesus Christ. He spoke audibly, just like any other human being. But John would have us to understand that while Jesus spoke as any other human being, he also spoke a different and more profound message than any other man. So again, John chapter 1, verse 37, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and the disciples see, excuse me, John the Baptist says, verse 36, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 37, John 1, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Why did they follow Jesus? Because there is a uniqueness to see to Jesus. There is there is something different about Jesus. There is a message that comes by Jesus and through Jesus that is different than any other. John chapter 4, when Jesus interacts with the woman at the well, and then she goes back to her village and tells them whom she has seen, and they come to hear Jesus, and they say to the woman, John 4:42, "It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We have heard this one speak. And when he speaks, he has a unique message, a different kind of message that declares something way different than anything else we're going to hear on earth. And we have believed that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the exalted God, and he has come in the flesh for us. The unbeliever, in contrast to these who believe, does not hear and does not believe Christ's authoritative word. So John, Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 38, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. What's unique about, about Jesus' message? He is able to speak things that he has seen and observed in heaven with the Father. Inter-Trinitarian conversations have been had that only He and the Spirit are privy to. And He now has come to earth and He is revealing, dispensing, teaching, speaking some of those things. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. You do not believe because you have not heard, he will say later in that passage. They hear, but they don't believe, they don't follow. John says, we have observed the coming of Christ And we have heard him. We've heard him speak audibly. We've heard the uniqueness of his message. And we have responded in faith to that message. He has not only been heard, but notice he also says what we have seen with our eyes. They physically saw him. And then, having seen him, they continued to contemplate who Jesus Christ was. So, the woman at the well, John 4, 29, goes to her village and says, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I've ever done. This is not the Christ, is it? Come see him. Come observe what I've observed about the Messiah. This is the one who is the unique God-man. Come see him. Come observe him. Not only did the Samaritan woman see him, but a blind man saw him. John chapter 9. I love this story. At the end of the story, after Jesus has healed him, 
And the Pharisees have kicked him out of the synagogue. Jesus comes to find him, John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus, hearing that they had put him out and finding him, he, Jesus said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this blind man answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. I came to reveal myself, to show myself so that, so that God might be seen, so that God might be explained on this earth and that having seen him that you might believe. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. They saw Christ, but they didn't see Him. They saw His physical body, but they did not see so as to believe. John saw Him. John continued to see him. Those who were with John, the other apostles, have seen him with their eyes. And we might insert, and with the eyes of their hearts, they also saw so as to believe. And what we have looked at, and what we have touched, they have seen, they have considered, they have examined, They have touched Christ. It's significant that John says, what we have touched. As you go through the account of Christ's time on earth, it is not infrequent that you find examples of him touching men, of him ministering to men with his touch, it is far less common to find accounts of people touching him. There are a few. Consider this one, John chapter 20. And Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Or consider John 21, verse 12. The disciples are out fishing. It's a bad day fishing. It's a bad night fishing until Jesus shows up. And the net breaks, and they bring that net of fish that is straining to the, to, the, to the beach. They count the fish. I think one of the disciples was an accountant. They get 153 fish, verse 11, verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread, and he gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thomas touched him. The disciples touched him, touched the food that he gave them there on the beach. They looked at him. They touched him. They affirmed not only his physical presence on earth, but they were able to affirm his physical presence after the resurrection. This is genuine God, genuine man. And it is this 
that John says in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim. We testify. We proclaim to you. This is, this is virtually a sworn deposition. This is legal talk. This is, this is the disciples saying, we're happy to take out a sworn testimony of the reality of what we have seen about Jesus Christ. He is genuine God in the flesh. They're authenticating Jesus' authenticity. All these statements demonstrated what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at and touched, all of these have affirmed that Jesus was genuine, true, observable man. He had genuine humanity. He was genuinely God incarnate. What is the significance? Bruce Ware, in his outstanding book, The Man Christ Jesus, says this, Although the eternal Son... As God the Son obeyed the Father and fulfilled what the Father willed for the Son to do prior to the Incarnation, yet it was only the God-man, the human Jesus, who could obey in this way, speaking about Philippians 2, laying aside the prerogatives of heaven to come to the cross. To obey to the point of death requires the ability to die, and for this... Jesus had to be human. To be placed on a cross required that he be in a human body, and so again, this obedience required that he had to be fully human. But is this not the very point Paul is making? This eternal Son, who himself in very substance was God, and was fully equal to God, took on our human nature precisely so that he could undergo the suffering, affliction, rejection, crucifixion, and death that he experienced, all because the Father had sent him to fulfill this saving mission. What a Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. How amazing was his obedience and how great was his love. This is the observable God in the flesh. The other thing that John will tell us is that Christ also is life. Christ is life. Three times in verses 1 and 2, John refers to Christ as life. Notice the end of verse 1. Speaking about him, he says, concerning the word of life, verse 2, and the life, we might say, and this life, referring back to the word of life, was manifested, and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. He is life. He is the word of life. He is life. He is eternal life. That little phrase, the word of life, refers to one who is life. He is life in himself. He has life. He contains life. He is life. But even more than that, it it focuses on the fact that he brings life, that he is the source of life. He is the one who gives life. He is alive and there is vitality in him. He is the one who brings life to all. He reemphasizes that again in verse 2 when he says, and the life was manifested. This life was manifested. This one who was life in himself, this one who gives life, we saw him. And this is what we proclaim to you, eternal life. When John focuses on the life of Jesus Christ, it is hopeful for us in at least two ways. It is hopeful for us because, brothers, we are dead men. And life is our hope. Life is our only hope. Death is our enemy. Death is not our friend. There is nothing friendly about death. There is nothing welcoming about death. Our bodies are opposed to death. Our bodies do not long to die. They long to live. 
Death is opposed to us, and we are opposed to death. But if Christ is the source and giver of life, that means that he also is not defeated by death, but in fact he defeats death and redeems death and makes death to be something that is good for us who are in Christ, even though it is our enemy. The Apostle Paul gives hint to that in his great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes this in verse 25. He, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign. He must subjugate all his enemies and he must put them under his feet. In the vernacular, he must trample on them and he must destroy them. And the last enemy, verse 26, that will be abolished is death. He's the victor over death. Verse 55, at the end of this chapter, he summarizes, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, there is a sting. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. That is, we come to know sin through the law. We understand death's power because of the stinging nature of what it does to us in sin. And we understand our sin as we observe the law. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive and he brings life to us. So when he says Christ is life that's hopeful because he has defeated death. It's also hopeful for us because it provides a reason for living now. If Christ is alive, now we have a purpose today for living. David Brainerd said, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. He is everything we need And he is everything for us. When I say, this is living, what do you think about? Thursday afternoon, some of you were gathered around a table. Some of you with a few family. Some of you by yourselves. And you looked at a mountainous spread, probably. And you said, wow. This is living. My kids, when I made um, a double helping of Brussels sprouts, seriously, this is living. They like my Brussels sprouts. Go figure. How do you finish that sentence? This is living. Relaxing around a meal with friends. A vacation to a new place. The three B's, blanket, book, and beach. Fire in the fireplace. Walk with your spouse in the cool of the evening and the sun is setting. A babysitter for your kids and a night away. This is living. How do you answer that question? Tell you how John answered it. Christ. Christ is living. I don't need anything else. I have Jesus. I have everything I need. No matter what I don't have, when I have the one who is life, I have everything. I don't need a feast on Thanksgiving Day. And maybe some of you didn't have a feast. I don't need family and friends. And maybe some of you on Thursday didn't. Brothers and sisters, if you had Christ, you have what you need. You don't need anything else. We have it all. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is the gospel that you believe, that Christ has come and Christ 
is the source of your life. That you have life in Him. That in His death, He has granted to you and given to you life. That's your source of joy. That's your satisfaction. And if you are not a Christian this morning, this is the very thing that you must believe. You must believe that Christ came. And you must believe that Christ alone is the source of life, that Christ alone is the purpose of life, that Christ alone is the end of life. You must believe that Jesus Christ is real God and real man, and that Jesus Christ died a real death on the cross, that Jesus Christ paid a penalty for sin that you could never in all of eternity in hell pay for to satisfy Christ, to satisfy God. And he paid that debt, and that if you believe in him, that he will forgive you of your sin and wipe away the debt. And that he, as the one who is life, is worth living for. And that you want to live for him. That you want him. That you want restoration to him. That he is the purpose for which you are created and you want Him above all things. That's the gospel, friend. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is what you must believe. You must turn away from your sin and you must turn to Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. The observable Christ, the manifested Christ, the Christ who is life. That's the message of the gospel. What's the value of the gospel? Notice verses 3 and 4. What we have heard and seen, we heard, excuse me, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. What's the value of the gospel? Full fellowship. Why did John and the apostles focus on the proclamation of the gospel? Notice what he says. So that you also may have fellowship with us. Biblical fellowship isn't food, though good fellowship has happened many times around food. Fellowship is more than friendship, though fellowship will always happen with genuine biblical friends. Biblical fellowship is a full sharing of life. It is a mutual togetherness. It is a common bond. It is communion and intimacy. It is, it is a vital connection between two parties when they are in fellowship with one another. There's harmony, union. It's not just we're buds. No. There's life, there's vitality, there's connectedness. And when that connectedness is broken, when there's disharmony, it hurts way more than just losing a buddy at work. There's harmony, a sharing in life, a sharing in ministry. This is the natural overflow of believing in Jesus. Look down at verse 7. If we walk in the light, if we walk in obedience to Him as He Himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. The natural overflow of being connected to Christ is connection to one another. A sharing in life and a sharing in ministry. This is a reminder again that body relationships in the church are not secondary. They are primary. They are essential. They're not optional. They're necessary. That's what we've been seeing in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? That out of the overflow of our connection with Christ and out of the overflow of our salvation, He's brought us together for vitality. And one of the things that we have learned during COVID these last... 19 years. Because <laughs> it feels that long, doesn't it? And so we need each other. I didn't, I didn't read the story. I didn't chase it down. But I saw 
a headline that NBC is reporting yesterday that all the people, that many of the people that they're trying to save the government through all of the restrictions and protections, people in nursing home, the most vulnerable about among us from COVID as they try and put in all these restrictions and isolate them, guess what's happening? They're dying from loneliness and inattention. And I would submit to you the same thing is happening in the body of Christ. There are people who are lonely and disconnected from one another because of COVID and they're dying spiritually. Brothers and sisters, the relationships we have are not secondary. They're vital and they're essential. But that's not ultimately John's point in this verse. Notice what he says. We have seen and heard and proclaimed to you, verse 3, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John wants us to pay particular attention to that phrase. And so he says, and indeed. He's drawing attention. Yes, we have fellowship with one another. And yes, it's vital. But there's an even more essential relationship. And that also has been made available to you. It is the fellowship that you have with the Father. In fact, that fellowship with the Father is the very meaning of eternal life. Do you remember what Jesus prayed, John chapter 17? This is eternal life that they may know you. Eternal life is not only that our sin is forgiven. Yes, that happens But the forgiveness of the sin is only the mechanism to get us to the full meaning of eternal life. And that is fellowship with the Father. We have been designed to know Him. And that is the very thing that Christ accomplishes through the cross. We don't often think about this. But God has saved us for the very purpose of making us his friends. He yearns for, desires, longs for, plans for, accomplishes friendship with you through Christ. The one who is sovereign over all infinite, transcendent, wanting and needing nothing, wants your friendship. That's astounding. He wants us to have Him as our friend. And friends, this goes all the way back to the very first sin. When Adam sinned, Who went looking for whom? Adam didn't wander out of the garden and say, Lord, where are you? I want to be restored to you. God came looking for Adam. And it's not, again, as if he didn't know where he was. I wonder where Adam is. I can't see him anywhere. No, he knew. But he wanted Adam to know where he was. And he wanted Adam to know where he, God, was. In the parable of the hundred sheep, where one goes wandering away from the pen, who looks for whom? The sheep never looks for the Savior. The sheep never looks for the shepherd. The shepherd seeks out, looks for the lamb. Listen to what John Owen says. Christ is our best friend and ere long will be our only friend. That's our Savior. Steve Lawson writes this. This is remarkable. 
As wretched sinners, we have nothing in common with a holy God, absolutely nothing. We are unable even to come into His presence because of the defilement of our sins. And yet the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins and provides us access to Him. Because of the cross, we may enter into partnership with Him and daily live in closest fellowship with Christ. By taking on humanity, Jesus was able to take upon Himself our sins at the cross. He came to earth so that we might go to heaven. He was born of a virgin that we might be born again. He came of the Son of Man that we might become sons of God. Through faith in Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature and receive His imputed righteousness, life, peace, love, and joy. What a partnership. Amen. Because Christ is observable, because Christ is life, we have fellowship and we have genuine joy. Here's the second reason that John writes. He writes so that we might have fellowship with the Father. And these things we write, verse 4, so that our joy may be made complete. Did you catch the pronouns in that verse? We write so that we can be happy. Well, that sounds a little self-serving, doesn't it? I think what John is talking about is the joy that a spiritual father has for his spiritual children. Second John Chapter, or excuse me, Second John, verse four. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. I was glad when when the children walked in the truth. Third John three. I was very glad when the brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking. In the truth. So when John says, we write this so that our joy may be made complete, he says, we write this so that we can have joy as you are walking in obedience to Christ and experiencing joy and fellowship with Him. Then you will be happy and we will be happy. And so when John says, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete, He's talking about his joy and he's talking about the joy of the readers. There's only one place the joy will come from. It's going to come through Jesus Christ, the one who is observable joy, the one, excuse me, the one who is observable God and the one who is life himself. Do you have that joy? Do you have that peace and satisfaction and contentment? that God is on His throne ruling the world exactly as to how He would want to rule it. Thirty years ago, one writer noted, Everywhere I go, I see people suffering from a lack of wholehearted, overflowing joy, even Christians. Pessimism and gloom hang like a blanket of smog over the land. Thirty years ago. A little more true today, isn't it? Where's your joy? Where's your fellowship? Is it in the Son? Is it in the One who came as observable God, as the One who came as life? He came so that we might have fellowship with each other and with Him so that we might have fullness of joy. Our Father, we thank You for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You for an opportunity to remember Him. We thank You, Father, for an opportunity to remember that He was manifested, that He was seen. He has not hidden Himself, but He has exposed Himself. And He has given to us knowledge of Himself by giving us life, And then giving us contentment and peace in life. 
We thank you and remember that his appearance was not only an act of obedience for him, but it was also for his joy and for your joy. You and he delighted to bring us into fellowship with you. That fellowship has made us friends of God, adopted children of God, the corporate bride of Christ. And it has removed every possibility of your wrath against us. And it has granted to us a fullness of kinship. We know something about happy relationships by the friendships and fellowship we have on earth. They are only the smallest taste of Christ's provision for us with you. We remember and thank you that his appearance is also for our joy. We admit and confess that we are too easily attracted by the temporal, secondary, unsatisfactory joys of the world. So we thank you that Christ has made joy possible, a joy that is lasting, primary, and satisfying. He will never disappoint us, and we will never regret following him. That's our memory this morning, our Father, a Savior who appeared, a Savior who has given us everything we need. As we have contemplated Christ our Savior, and as we prepare to come to the table of communion, we also want to pause in this moment to examine ourselves. This is what the Scriptures remind us to do as we come to this table. And so we take a few moments now to examine whether or not we are truly in the faith, whether we are trusting and believing only in the incarnated, observable, crucified and risen Christ for salvation. If we are in the faith, our Father, we rejoice and we give you thanks for this indescribable gift. If we are not in the faith, we pause to contemplate the wretchedness of our sin, the utter despair of our hopelessness to appease your anger against us. And we pause now, Father, considering our empty and hopeless state and ask you to forgive our sin, for Christ to become our master so that we might live with him and we might live for him.